Hello, and welcome back to Spotlight on Women in Health Ventures, the podcast powered by Thea, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering women as entrepreneurs in healthcare. Priyanka Jane has always been passionate about leveraging data to improve outcomes for women. She's co-founder and CEO of Evie, a company focusing on closing the gender health gap by discovering female-specific biomarkers, starting with the vaginal microbiome. Evie has the metagenomic sequencing vaginal health test and offers care based on the discoveries to diagnose, treat, and predict complex health conditions in the female body. Prior to Evie, Priyanka worked as head of product at Pymetrics, where she focused on building algorithms to make hiring more fair, efficient, and transparent. She's also a spokesperson for the United Nations Foundation's Girl Up campaign, chair of the Acumen Fund's junior council, and on the innovation board of the XPRIZE Foundation. She received her BS from Stanford University, where she was a Mayfield Fellow and president of Stanford Women in Business. Hi, Priyanka. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm so excited to hear your story. Why don't we start off and you can tell us about your background and how you first got interested in entrepreneurship, healthcare, and vaginal microbiome. Amazing. Thank you so much for having me here, Sarah. I'm really excited to be here trying to think where to start. So I actually have a background in the data world and have always been really interested in ways that we can use data and technology to make the world a better place for women somehow. And spent the five years before Evie actually working on a company that built algorithms for the hiring process to try to remove bias from the process. So instead of looking at resumes and what people had done in the past, were there more predictive markers that could actually allow us to look at a broader population who maybe didn't look or sound or talk or have the experiences that were more typical. And in that journey, I think I learned a lot about how do you build algorithms in really regulated areas, you know, as there was kind of this rapid adoption of data in the HR space, you know, then came a lot of questions about like, well, where did the data come from? And how did you actually build the algorithm? And it was really interesting to kind of be in that space as it evolved. And I think kind of two things happened to me. One, I was dealing with a lot of my own quote unquote, mysterious health issues, just feeling like I had gone to so many doctors without really getting answers, really felt like people didn't know what to measure. I was told to drink a lot of water, sleep more, be less stressed, you know, kind of all of the things that women tend to hear in the healthcare system. Um, and at the same time, I was kind of watching this very similar trend happen in the healthcare industry, where similarly, people were starting to think about the massive data that exists in healthcare and how could we start to leverage it to improve outcomes. And as I started doing some of my own research, that was when I found out some of the crazy facts that now underpin a lot of Evie, right? The fact that women weren't required to be in clinical research in the U.S. until 1993. And that to this day, women are diagnosed on average four years later than men across over 770 diseases. And that really screamed to us that there is like this very interesting data gap when it comes to our understanding of the female body. And going back to this idea that there was this rapid adoption of data centric technology in healthcare, there then becomes this question of like, wait, but most of that data was not designed based on female bodies, right? The things that we chose to measure at the doctor's office were based on what was predictive of health and disease when the person you were talking about was probably a middle-aged, mid-sized white man, right? And when you have someone in your office who doesn't look like that, how do we know that the tests that we're running, the fields that we're tracking in an EHR are even the right place to start? And that became really my first interest, which was like, what are those overlooked signals that the female body uniquely creates 
And what if we could actually measure and track those things to be able to better predict risk of disease in female bodies, diagnose disease, and treat disease um, in the ways that it manifests uniquely? Yeah, that's, I mean, I think it's such an important issue that, like you said, women weren't in these clinical trials. And a lot of the norms that we have within the medical healthcare world are not based on women, but like half the population's women. So. Right. And it's this idea that like, you know, women were too complex or too expensive to study because we had menstrual cycles or all these different things that were considered quote unquote, too many variables to control for in research. But then it's funny because like, but then in the real world, those variables still exist, right? You're still giving this treatment or this diagnostic protocol to all of those people. So I feel very passionately about finding ways to make sure that research actually is inclusive of the people that it then is applied to. And how did you first start out then with the vaginal microbiome? And like, how did you know that was what you wanted to start with? Yes, very good question. Uh, Usually when I say what I do, people are like, what is the vaginal microbiome? Or like, why is that where you chose to start? And it's funny because when I was doing the initial research behind Evie, and I think I interviewed like 200 doctors, scientists, I was really in the weeds trying to better understand which set of biomarkers would make the biggest impact. And honestly, in my research, I could not escape the vaginal microbiome, which is hilarious because most people have no idea what it is. But from a patient standpoint, when you interview women about their experiences in the healthcare system, vaginal health came up all the time, right? It's one of the most prevalent conditions in women. It's a leading reason that women seek healthcare advice. It's extremely physically frustrating, emotionally, mentally, relationally, has this really big kind of impact on our quality of life. And people just told me so many stories about being misdiagnosed, the treatment's not working, the frustration and the impact that has on their sex life, their self-esteem, all of these things. And then that matched with the amount of research that exists showing that the vaginal microbiome is you know, obviously what's behind all of these vaginal symptoms, but also that it plays this really interesting role in female health, right? Whether it's related to fertility outcomes, pregnancy outcomes, STI acquisition, cervical cancer progression, abnormal pap smear progression, all of these things, the vaginal microbiome seemed to be playing this really interesting role. And it just felt wild to me that as people with vaginas, we have no access to that data on our own body and that we weren't using it to be more proactive and data-driven in the actual provision of healthcare. And so it felt like an opportunity to both provide answers to women and people with vaginas who've been struggling with these infections and these symptoms, not able to get answers. And then on the back end, to be able to finally actually do the clinical research that could actually improve the standard of care that we experience in the doctor's office. And so why don't we take a step back and can you define what the vaginal microbiome is? And I'm also curious about the history, kind of when was it discovered? I feel like the gut microbiome exploded but people are still not talking about the vaginal microbiome? Yeah, such a good question. Okay, here is my mini vaginal microbiome 101 explanation. So obviously you just said you've heard of the gut microbiome, maybe you've heard of the oral microbiome. The concept of a microbiome is probably not something new for most people at this point. It's a community of microbes, bacteria, fungi, et cetera, that live in or on some part of your body, right? And it turns out we have one of those also in our vagina. And I always say it's so interesting to think about the vagina and kind of its structural role within the female body, right? It's kind of this gateway between the outside world that's full of tons of every type of microbe you could imagine, pathogens, et cetera. 
And then on the other side of this gateway are some of our most important internal reproductive organs. And the way I like to think about it is that we've essentially co-evolved with this community of microbes that lives in that canal that do more than just hang out down there, right? It turns out that they actually play what I refer to as this very interesting like local immune system role where they're actually protecting that canal and that uh, pathway. And what I mean by that is when the vaginal microbiome is in what I would call a protective state, it tends to be dominated by bacteria such as lactobacilli that produce a lot of lactic acid, hydrogen peroxide. They take up space on the vaginal wall and they make it difficult for any pathogens that do get in the vagina to be able to survive, thrive, replicate anything like that. The environment's too acidic. They don't have space, et cetera. But then what you see is that you have sex with someone new. You sit in your swimsuit for too long. You have a long menstrual cycle. Anything that can kind of increase the pH of your vagina, when that starts to happen, you start to see these more pathogenic microbes be able to replicate. And as people with vaginas, what we then experience is bacterial vaginosis, aerobic vaginitis, yeast infections, recurrent UTIs, right? The leading reason that we go and seek healthcare advice. And what's so interesting to me is that that breakdown in that protective barrier, right? And that barrier that the microbiome was playing is doing more than just, you know, causing these symptoms that we then experience and go to the doctor for. It turns out that that breakdown is also then associated with so many interesting health conditions that people are then uh, more associated with having negative IVF outcomes, pregnancy outcomes, more likely to acquire STIs, more likely for cervical cancer to progress. And it's really interesting because it turns out that that vaginal microbiome was playing this interesting role. And when we don't have it in its kind of optimal or protective state, we then end up at risk for a lot more than just symptoms, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes total sense. I think the missing links in medical school, and I'm kind of curious if this changes in residency for, I guess, like specifically for OBGYN, you're taught like there are microbes, the lactobacilli, and there's a certain ratio, but that's about it. Like it doesn't extend further to how it impacts someone's health and like impacts risk factors for other diseases. Right. And even within lactobacilli, there's tons of different species that all play totally different roles. Some of the lactobacilli are amazing at protecting you. Some of them not so much within the pathogens. Some of the things that we think are pathogens are actually, you know, 20 different things. And within that, only half of them are pathogens. The way we want to treat them is different. And I think what's so hard and, you know, what's so difficult for so many of our patients and customers that come to us is that they're being treated at this extremely broad level, right? It's this idea of like vaginitis or bacterial vaginosis, overgrowth of bacteria, right? When in reality, what's going on is so different and specific, but our current clinical kind of gold standard, as you've probably heard, is things like the AMSOL criteria, right? Where you're literally looking at it under the microscope, trying to see what shapes of microbes you think are present. We're smelling the swab. We're like doing all these very kind of crude ways of trying to understand what's going on. And then we just throw an antibiotic at it and hope that a different microbiome grows back, which is not what happens in the vast majority of people who then have these infections. And then you get stuck in these cycles because we're not good enough at getting to a precise diagnosis that then unlocks actual treatment that can help. And I think what's so interesting in kind of women's health in general is that we are at this broad level of diagnoses in so many categories. And one of my mentors, Dr. David Sable says this very well. He's like, you know, when there was cancer, it was unsolvable. Then you have lung cancer, which is still too broad to be solved, right? And then you finally get to a specific mutation of a specific gene, and that becomes a problem that you can have 
treatments for. And I think in women's health, so many of our diagnoses are still at the cancer and lung cancer level, which by definition make it really hard for us to actually come up with more precise and effective treatments. And we're hoping that that exact problem of bringing more comprehensive data is what platforms like Evie will solve. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about kind of what Evie is and what do you think the goals of it are? Yeah, definitely. So our goal of Evie is to discover and leverage overlooked female biomarkers that can help us improve healthcare outcomes for women. And, you know, our first product is obviously really focused on the vaginal microbiome, which we've talked a lot about. It's called the Evie Vaginal Health Test. We launched it in July of 2021, and it's the first and only at-home vaginal health test that leverages metagenomic sequencing, which is a form of sequencing that actually looks at the whole genome to help anyone with a vagina better understand what's going on down there. How is it related to your health, your goals, you know, anything that you might care about? And then also, what can you actually do about it? And we essentially kind of bring together the state-of-the-art testing. We actually just in January launched access to -to end-to-end precision vaginal health care as well. So now in addition to getting the answers from the test, you can actually connect to doctors through the EBI platform who can then give you access to more precise treatments, as well as kind of coaching, education, and community, which we found to be a really important part of the vaginal health journey. Um, and on the back end, we now have by far the largest data set on this topic. We've started to do a lot of really interesting research. We have really exciting academic collaborations, and we're really hoping that we can finally bring this more data-driven, comprehensive understanding of what health and disease actually look like into a clinical sphere. And how did you go from the idea you had to kind of where you are now, or at least from your first kind of product that you launched? Oh my God, that is... (laughs) That's a big question, I know. Um, I mean, there were so many steps from realizing that the vaginal microbiome really mattered to how do you actually bring this type of testing to the vaginal microbiome, like metagenomic sequencing of the vaginal microbiome hadn't really been done at scale before. What are the different ways you need to optimize both the wet lab component as well as the bioinformatic component? How do we actually explain this data to people? How do we actually make that interpretable, actionable, understandable? You know, we always say our job is to treat people like they're smart. So instead of obfuscating information until we have perfect answers, we just make it clear where things are really well-researched versus where things are much more novel. But finding ways to actually explain all of that, categorize it was a lot of of our initial work. Mm -hmm. And now since we've launched our test, we've been able to do a lot of really interesting work on the back end around discovering new genes, new genomes. How do we actually use that to do a better job correctly annotating what's present in a sample? How do we actually take all of that data to then go back to the wet lab and optimize the ways in which we're actually extracting or the ways in which we're doing a lot of the different steps throughout our process? So I would say it was very important for us to find What is the first version that provides value to a consumer, to their provider, to the conversations that they have with their partner? How do we help them advocate for themselves and understand their own bodies? And then I think big second initiative that we undertook was thinking about how this data could change care. And to do that, we collaborated really closely with our absolutely incredible medical advisory board to develop these novel care pathways that took into account much more precise information, much kind of longer term treatment to actually shift the microbiome. And Mm -hmm. we actually 
got IRB approval to run a human study on our care programs. We were able to run that, show its effectiveness all before we actually released it to the public just in January. It's very impressive how fast you guys are working on this. It feels like there's still a lot to do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but it's just, it's very impressive. Um, So what is the value for customers to have the information about their microbiome makeup? And obviously it kind of changes. So how do you account for that? Yeah, totally. So for most people, it's understanding what's actually going on down there, right? When you go to the doctor's office, you get told, oh, you have an overgrowth of bacteria. Here's the antibiotic. I hope it goes away, right? Or if you're lucky enough to get a test, it looks for three things, right? And those three things might all come back negative. They might all come back positive, but it really doesn't help you get a holistic picture of what's going on, what's contributing the most, what's actually a small problem. And for a lot of people, They've been going to the doctor, either either being told you have the same infection over and over and over again, or being told you're fine. Nothing seems wrong, right? And I think in both of those cases, it's the lack of access to testing that really can comprehensively answer that question, right? Okay, actually, what you thought was a yeast infection is actually bacterial vaginosis, or what you thought was bacterial vaginosis is actually aerobic vaginitis, right? And really helping people understand what is likely to be going on. And then I think there's, you know, beyond the actual answers of like, you're not crazy. Here is what we found. Here is what science knows and what science doesn't know. Um, And especially for people with recurrent symptoms, that is just so validating for them, honestly. I think the second component is like, okay, now how do you go advocate for yourself? How do you go talk to your partner about the role that sex is playing in your vaginal microbiome? How do you go talk to your doctor and bring them the study that shows that exactly what's in your vagina is, this is the treatment that's most likely to work and have a much more informed conversation. Mm -hmm. And then I think it's like, for the average person and for the person who maybe doesn't have recurrent infections, it's really like getting familiar with a part of your body that plays such an important role in our health that we frankly know like way too little about and pay no attention to until there's a problem, right? But for 80% of people who have a dysbiotic vaginal microbiome, meaning it doesn't have that kind of protective barrier, they don't even have symptoms. And today we just completely leave that out of the healthcare system. We don't test, we don't do anything, which there are you know pros and cons of, but I think that people at least deserve the information on their own bodies so that they can then go participate in shared decision-making with their healthcare providers. And so are there good treatment options for what you're finding? Yeah, great question. So it like all of the treatments that our doctors prescribe are things that like have existed, right? We're not inventing drugs here. I think it's a question of which antibiotic is most likely to help this person, right? Or if they don't have the protective bacteria, is there a way to reintroduce that protective bacteria and supplement it as it tries to regrow, right? Or is it likely that someone has biofilms present that are actually preventing an antibiotic from being able to reach the pathogens that it's being taken for, right? So we try to provide all of that information to a physician so that then they can decide which course of those treatments is most likely to help someone. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that's really kind of exciting about physician partnerships that we have is that a lot of these vaginal probiotics and supplements are actually able to be delivered vaginally versus, you know, taking oral probiotics and hoping that they change your vaginal microbiome. And so all of the different treatments are, like I said, things that already exist that have already been studied for their efficacy in vaginal health. And the magic of Evie is really saying which of those things is most likely to help this specific person in kind of in what order over what period of time are we most likely to be able to shift them to a protective vaginal microbiome. 
How do you see Evie working with the healthcare system? Will you ever collaborate with like the clinical offices or hospitals or like, how do you see that? Yeah, great question. Um, well, we would love to. I think that um, right now we have a variety of providers that actually use the Evie test with their patients, either the first time they have symptoms. Oftentimes it's, you know, the first time they try the standard of care and then it doesn't work for half their patients. And then they're like, okay, let's get more data and take a more precise approach. And we already see pretty exciting adoption on the provider side on that front. I think we also see that a lot of people bring their EBI results to their doctor. The patients are way more educated, you know, through the EBI platform. They know what's going on. They know what to ask for. And so we've seen a lot of engagement with the clinical community through that. And then I would say third is really like, actually the research side, right? Can we actually show that this type of data can improve outcomes? And then we can make it into, you know, different forms of clinical guidelines, right? And become a more standard part of the process. I think my hope is that people or patients don't have to find and come to Evie themselves when they have these problems, that any doctor they go to is better informed because Evie existed. And so I think we want to distribute the information throughout the existing system. Um, it's just a matter of earning our right to do so. Yeah. And how do you recruit your customers? Great question. They come to us from everywhere. I mean, our actually our biggest channel is word of mouth and community. I think that most people find Evie because either their friend told them at a dinner party, like it's in those small moments where women share their own experiences, as well as in these larger online communities where people are talking endlessly about their vaginal symptoms, what they've tried, what's worked, what hasn't worked. And now it feels like the first thing people ask is, well, what are your Evie results, right? Have you... Have you been able to actually look at what's going on before you go talk to your doctor next? Mm -hmm. So it's been really exciting to see that form of growth. Also, like I said, through providers now who leverage Evie. Um, and then also I would say through our educational content, like I'm so amazed by our content team as well as the medical team that helps us put together this content. But turns out that searching for vaginal symptoms and conditions, it happens a lot on Google. And most of the time what you're hit with is like an ad for Vagicil telling you that your vagina should smell like flowers, right? And so we now get to respond to that with here are eight experts' opinions on why yeast infections don't go away or here is why you might be experiencing pain with sex, right? And really providing scientifically backed, understandable answers to people. And we found a huge amount of traffic and engagement from just providing that information, both on our blog, but actually also on TikTok. I think we have over 5 million likes or shares or something like that. And it's been really kind of fun to think about what does it mean to destigmatize and demystify these conditions that are extremely prevalent, but also so taboo. And we found that TikTok is actually kind of the perfect place to do that because people love to see something they're a little bit surprised by. And we've seen just a lot of engagement and education through that platform. And so on the topic of taboos, like how do you reconcile the taboos of discussing vaginal health with people in general, with physicians, and then also in terms of raising money? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's thrilling. You got to love the first time you get on an investor call with a group of like all white men and start saying vaginal health. Um, you first see everyone kind of like squirm and then eventually people come back to the table. I would say that for us, it's just been taking a very kind of matter of fact approach matched with an ability to laugh about it approach. Right. And I think that 
it's saying like, look, regardless of whether or not you want to talk about this, this is one of the main reasons women seek healthcare advice. This affects over 30% of women every single year. Like it's just a hard to ignore problem size. And I think that really finally captures people's attention on the, especially the investor side. I think providers actually, they've been coming to us a lot because I think it's equally as frustrating and you can probably empathize with this having a patient who you just can't help, right? They come back 12 times with the same symptoms and you don't have any other tools in your toolkit to give them better answers or give them better solutions. And I think that they're they're really looking for something new to say and new to do. So I think that that's been really helpful. They've kind of been doing the destigmatization and outreach there. Yeah. And then I would say on the patient side, it's just being able to laugh about it, right? It's it's being able to laugh about like, what does it make you scared of when you're in the elevator with your colleagues? Or, you know, we've all been there. We've all misdiagnosed ourselves, gone to CVS, taken a yeast infection medication. Like we've all been through those experiences. And I think it feels like the right time in history for people to like talk about it and laugh about it. And the fact that it's such a widely shared experience. And so going back to the specific EVI services that you guys provide, I know you guys have a membership and you also have this single test. Can you talk to me about kind of what the differences are? Yeah, definitely. So when someone decides to take an EVI test, they can either take a test one time and just kind of get a snapshot of what's going on right now, or they can take a test every three months, which is what we call our membership. And I think they're both great options depending on what someone's needs are at the time. If you're experiencing symptoms maybe for the first time, or maybe you've gone to the doctor and something didn't work and you're curious about what's actually going on, maybe you're not as interested in the longitudinal data. Whereas if you're somebody who has had recurrent infections, is trying a lot of different treatments with your doctor, actually being able to see, is this working? Is this getting better? Is this money I'm spending actually improving anything for me? Also for people who are optimizing for some of the other health conditions, whether it's pregnancy or fertility related, et cetera, being able to actually track and see that you're on the track that you want to is really helpful for a lot of people. And we have some great features in the product that let you see kind of how it's changing over time, depending on different things that you're doing. And I think also for physicians who might see you once prescribe something, and then patients often want to know, like, am I better? It can be a great tool for follow-up care and knowing whether someone has gotten themselves to a steady state or if they need to be seen again. And are the services, is it out of pocket? Do you take insurance? Yeah, it's currently all cash pay out of pocket. I will say that the the copay for most of the appointments and tests that are covered by insurance end up being the same price for a much lower fidelity test. People, when we were starting the company, everyone told me that the type of testing we wanted to do would cost us $500. And I think it's pretty amazing that we can offer full metagenomic sequencing for just $99. And I think that's a huge testament to the innovation that's happened in the testing space. Um, And hopefully that will come down even more. And hopefully insurance will decide that this is worth covering over time. But unfortunately... The trend in the payer landscape has actually been less coverage for vaginal health. And so it's, it's an uphill battle that we are fighting. Right, so now I'd love to pick your brain and understand how you built Evie. So how do you find the physicians and how do you work with them to develop products, content, testing, et cetera? Great question. So... They all were a combination of me incessantly emailing them and them reaching out to us, I would say. And 
they, I would say each of them plays, they own kind of like a swim lane at Evie, right? So someone might be in charge of helping us think about um, different ways that we should be iterating on the bioinformatics of our test analysis, right? Someone might be really focused on helping us think about eligibility for care when you're offering it in a digital setting. Someone might be really focused on iterating on the actual care pathways that are developed through the Evie or offered through the Evie care platform. Mm-hmm. Others are really focused on content and education. So I would say that they kind of have their own work streams within Evie versus functioning as like a board, if that makes sense. It's almost like they're employees in their own little domains, which has been really fun to kind of have them integrated into our team. And it's not that they just interact with me at some sort of board level. They're actually kind of embedded into all of the different teams at Evie, depending on what their expertise is. And Yeah. I mean, I would say that like for anyone else who's starting, like it's not easy. I feel like when you don't have a brand, it's really hard to get people to want to work with you. But I would say that like just sending a lot of emails over a long period of time, showing them, you know, before we launched and we were trying to build our advisory board, I would just share quotes with them of the patients who would come to us saying like, here are all the different ways we want to be helped and say, you know, I really think that you have the opportunity to help us build something that could really help this person. Um, But it wasn't easy and it took us a while to get that together. And then I would say, once someone says yes, then it became a lot easier. Then it was like, oh, that person said yes. So now I'll say yes. And now I just feel like our advisory board is one of the things I'm the most proud of. I feel like we have such a rock star group of people across clinical and research who are able to help us really take this amazing data asset that we have and get the most value out of it for women and people with vaginas. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great tip, kind of taking quotes from like the people you're like kind of helping um, and showing like what, like kind of what your value is to them and why it's important that they, um, why they might want to join. And so what are some um, challenges in the field um, of kind of women's health? <laughs> and like, yeah, that's broad, I but like, you know, what are some like major, I think like, what are like the the top three things that you think are going to be the main issues that um, will be tackled in the next like five, 10, 20 years? Such a big question. I mean, I think that one of the challenges is the limited scope of what is considered women's health. I think that, you know, if you look at where venture dollars have gone, I think like 70% of venture money that has gone to quote unquote women's health has gone to fertility or pregnancy focused companies. And of all the money that's been invested in digital health, only 3% of that even went to women's health in the first place. So then you can just imagine the small pool that's left for all conditions related to women's health that are not related to our ability to reproduce. And so I think that a big challenge is helping the investment community understand that women's health is more than our ability to have babies and that there are a lot of opportunities as it relates to female specific conditions that may or may not have any uh, relationship to whether or not we can reproduce as well as how different diseases actually affect women differently or disproportionately. And I think that, you know, those will be big challenges and opportunities within women's health. Um, I think second will be kind of thinking about the ways in which um, all of them are distributed. I think that distribution is always hard for companies, but I think that as we start to see, you know, there's tons of companies that work direct to consumer. There's companies that work uh, by selling into employers. And I think figuring out kind of how do we all play together, right? That's great. That's cool that you guys are all kind of talking and sharing customers and stuff. 
Right. Yeah. And I think that we always say like, we see vaginal health as the front door to so much of women's health. Right. And are there ways that then we can funnel people into the most relevant care pathways with a lot more data than they had before. But I think that getting to a point where all of those things are connected and integrated and easy for the consumer and the patient, um, we have a ways to go. That's awesome. Um, And so what do you see Evie in five or 10 years? I think I would love to see, obviously, Evie continuing to provide information to women and people with vaginas on their own bodies and that those people feel empowered. Um, I think that feeling of empowerment is something that I hope to scale to our next 100,000 customers and members. I think I'd love to see that we are able to actually at scale, improve vaginal health outcomes in a more efficient, cost-effective manner at home. I think we've now we've shown that we could do that with our first cohort in our study. And I want to do that nationwide, prove that we can do that at scale. And then I'd love to think about, you know, what are the ways that improving vaginal health can improve other parts of health, right? Can we start to prove that by monitoring and optimizing someone's vaginal health, we can improve their fertility success rates. We can improve, you know, positive pregnancy outcomes. We can reduce the rates of cervical cancer progression. How can we start to leverage the data and platform we have so that we can actually leverage vaginal health as an opportunity to improve overall female health? Does the vaginal microbiome change as one ages? Are you guys looking into that? Like, how can that be studied and what value does it provide? Such a good question. Absolutely. Urogenital symptoms are like some of the main symptoms of menopause. And that's happening for a variety of reasons, right? The decrease in estrogen affects the vagina in a few ways, but one of the main ways is actually through impacting the vaginal microbiome. Essentially, estrogen produces glycogen and glycogen is really important for the lactobacilli, that healthy bacteria in the vagina. And when that estrogen and then therefore glycogen starts to go down, what you start to see is that the lactobacilli in the vagina have a harder time thriving and that people are more susceptible to vaginal infections, UTIs, et cetera. And so a large proportion of our customers are women who are in perimenopause or menopause. um, And it is something we are actually actively researching because right now, so many of the solutions are just take vaginal estrogen or take this probiotic. But then if you take the probiotic and it doesn't have the glycogen, it's still not going to survive. So we're doing a lot of research on looking at how do you understand what healthy looks like in non-reproductive aged women, right? Because so much of the research on the vaginal microbiome has been focused on reproductive aged women, but so many of the women suffering from imbalances in the vaginal microbiome are not of reproductive age. So it's something that is a big part of our data set and something we're actively trying to increase the clinical knowledge of. So I just wanted to ask you some questions about kind of being a leader of a team. What have you learned about building a company and a team? I think one, your team is everything. Like literally it is everything. At the end of the day, you can have the most genius ideas. You can have the biggest problem, the best investors, whatever it is. But if you don't have the team of people to execute on it, both from a a skills perspective, but also from like an energy perspective, it's hard to build a company. It's harder to build a company in healthcare and it's even harder to build a company in women's healthcare. And so I think having the, the stamina, the belief, the willingness to kind of show up every day when a lot of things say no to you all day, every day is so important. And especially as a founder on the days where you don't feel like you can do that for yourself to have your team be able to, to do that for you. Um, 
And I think that, yeah, people are everything, whether that's your customers, it's your team, it's your investors, I think choose wisely because that will dictate everything. Mm -hmm. And what are some specific attributes that you try to embody as the leader of a team? Yeah, great question. I think a lot about being an authentic leader to myself. I think something I've been open with my team about is this idea that I feel like so many examples of great founders, great leaders are men, right? And I think it's hard because I don't feel like my potentially my natural tendencies of the way I like to run a meeting or the way I like to talk to people feel very different from a lot of the versions of successful leaders that I've seen. And I think something that I'm really grateful to my team for is kind of giving me the space to just be myself and also be a leader and for those two things to be congruent, even though they don't look like what examples of leadership we've seen everywhere else, whether that's my more casual way of talking and running things, or it's the pitch of my voice, or it's the way I dress, or it's my age, whatever it is that isn't kind of standard. I've really tried to not be scared of those things and instead be like, this is who I am. This is what I can offer and what I can't offer. And I will surround myself with the people who can fill in the gaps that I have. I feel like I try to embody that so that my team can then feel the same way. I really love that. I I mean, that's part of what Thea is trying to show is that there are different ways to be a leader. And so on that, who are some female founders who you look up to? I mean, so many of them. I look up to almost all female founders. I would say that obviously what Margot Georgiatis and Ann Wojcinki did with Ancestry and 23andMe is so inspiring and relevant to Evie in so many ways. But then I would also say I really look up to so many of our peers who are also seed and series A founders building in women's health who, you know, are able to, we're all able to pick each other up on the small things that we don't feel like we can do. And I feel like people always say there's these amazing mentors, right? The people like Anne and Margot that are absolutely legendary and such amazing mentors to us. But sometimes what I've realized is that the people who are just six months ahead of you can actually maybe be more helpful than the person that's 20 years ahead of you. And so I think those female founders have been the ones that have been actually the most tactically helpful because they just went through what I went through six months ago. Yeah, that's great. And do you have any book recommendations either related to women's health, vaginal health, or just books you love? (laughs) Yeah, I would say on the women's health note, there's two books I love. One is called Invisible Women, an incredible book about the data gap on women generally. And she's an amazing chapter focused on healthcare. Caroline Criardo Perez is the author of that book. And then the other book I love is called Sex Matters. It's Alison McGregor. She is amazing. I would say that they both of those women have just done such a great job putting the data behind the gender health gap and making that accessible to people. So I love both of those books. Mm-hmm. And lastly, any advice to women kind of early on in their career um, who are interested in kind of getting involved with healthcare entrepreneurship and innovation? Yeah, I would say what I wish I had heard back in the day was that, you know, there is a, a role for people to play in healthcare innovation, even if you're not a doctor. I think when I was starting, it felt like the only question people asked me was, are you a doctor? And if if the answer is no, then how could you possibly have something to offer the healthcare system? And I think, you know, doctors are obviously like without a doubt, such a critical component of it. And also, so are patients. So are people who have gone through the system. So are people who really understand data, who really understand testing technology. I think that remembering no matter what your expertise is, you probably have something to offer the space and not being scared of being in it because you're not an expert, because we need you. We need more 
people who have different expertises, whether it's storytelling, whether it's art that connects, you know, helps people understand what a problem is. There's, there's room for everyone. That's great. Thank you so much, Priyanka, for coming on to the Thea podcast. It's been so wonderful hearing everything that you're doing. I think it's so incredibly important and so exciting. Um, So I can't wait to continue following you and Evie. Oh, thank you so much. It was so nice to be here. And I I love what you guys are doing at Thea. I think it's just an incredible community that will leave all of us better off. Thank you all for listening. Visit us on Instagram at Thea Healthcare, on Twitter at ThiaHC, and on our website at ThiaHC.org for more content and to join our vibrant community of young professionals, entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders in healthcare. Special thanks to our amazing audio editors, Ellie Park, Asim Jain, Nikita Gupta, and Katie Donahue. If you're enjoying our content, please consider supporting our podcast by donating at anchor.fm slash thea-hc slash support.